So, as I mentioned before, the first word of the book of Leviticus is an. An is the continuation of the story. Leviticus can be divided in two major sections. The first section is chapters 1 through 15, and that is how does one become clean in order to enter the presence of Yahweh. The name of this section is the regulations concerning public worship. So this is where God is going to detail out, you are defiled as a sinner living in the world with sinful thoughts, sinful deeds, sinful actions. And so how does one become clean so that you can enter the presence of God and then worship him and truly connect to him? There is a pivotal chapter right in the middle. It's Leviticus 16. It's the Day of Atonement. This is the climax of the entire book. And so this is where they take all the first 15 chapters and they execute them. They take the sacrificial goats and they cleanse the tabernacle and they cleanse the people and they make everybody clean so that they can enter the presence of Yahweh in public worship. Um, Chapter 16 is a part of the first unit, but most scholars agree that it should be a part of the first and the second. But when you're making an outline, that's kind of impossible to do. So that is the pivotal climax point in all of the book. The second half, which is 17 through 27, is then how do I go out to the world and maintain a state of cleanness? How do I live in the world as clean? How do I worship God out in the world? So the first section is how do I become clean to enter the tabernacle and worship God? Then they actually do that. And then it's how do I maintain this state of cleanness? And when I am not clean, when I mess that up, how do I get clean again? Which kicks you right back into the beginning of Leviticus. So Leviticus is kind of a circle. It's linear in the way that you read it, but if you put it into practice, it's pretty much I become clean, I get into the tabernacle, I worship God, I connect, I go back out, I live a clean life, I end up screwing up because I'm a sinner, so I'm defiled again, so I get clean, so I can go back to the tabernacle, and that's pretty much how Leviticus is going to work. So the first section or division is these first 15, 16 chapters. Um, But the first mini-section we're going to go through is the laws concerning sacrifices. It's the first seven chapters. And so this is by far the most important um, because it is through the sacrificial system that you're primarily able to enter into the tabernacle. And even though you and I are completely out of touch with a sacrificial system as modern-day Christians, we at least get that the most important thing in all of Christianity is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a sacrificial lamb for us. So if that is by far the most important thing in all of Christianity for our salvation. It is that sacrifice that makes us clean and gets us into the presence of God. It is that sacrifice that makes us clean again and again and becomes our cycle. Then it's obvious if you kick back into the First Testament that the sacrificial system is by far the most important thing here. And I remember when God in Exodus 19 and 20 gave them the law before he ever got to the construction of the tabernacle, he immediately said, and this is how you're to build the altar. Because the implication is you're going to, here's the law, this is what it means to be righteous, but you're not going to be able to do it. So we don't have time to wait for the instructions for how to build a tabernacle. Just get the altar built now. And so the altar is the heart of the faith. And the other thing that kind of emphasizes when you get to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews makes it very clear that we're not under the law anymore. 
And the first and primary thing that he attacks is the sacrificial system and the priesthood. Because every Israelite knows that the priesthood and the sacrificial system is the foundation to the law. When you read through the laws in Exodus, all of Leviticus, and the laws in Numbers, and all of Deuteronomy, what is repeated and talked about more than anything else is the sacrificial system and the priesthood. And I know a lot of times it's so easy for us to think, oh, we're not under the law of sacrifices anymore, but we're still under the law of morality and all that kind of stuff, and, and we don't really know what to do with all the civil laws, so we'll just say America covers all that. And that's usually how we approach the law. We think there's three sections, civil laws, moral law, and ceremonial sacrifices. And we just say, oh, Christ took care of this ceremonial. We're still under the moral. And we'll just let America figure out all those political laws. <laughs> and, but the problem is that doesn't work. Um, because one, the Bible never divided the law into three sections. It just called it the law. Paul made it very clear to violate one law means to violate it all. And Hebrews made it very clear that if you're not under, if you throw one law out, you have to throw them all out. And the most important thing you must understand is the sacrificial system of the priesthood is the entire law. The morality and the civil is like only 10 to 15 percent of the law. Therefore, if you kick out the ceremonial, you kick out the priesthood and sacrificial, you have nothing left in the law. And so I'm not going to discuss what the role of the law is today yet. Like I said earlier in Exodus, I want to, for you to get to feel for the law first. Um, it's hard to talk about what the law means for us today if we really haven't gotten into an in-depth study on what the law is through Leviticus. So as we go through Leviticus, I'm definitely going to make applicational points today. I'm definitely going to try to translate this through Christ as we go, so that hopefully when we get to what the role of the law is at the end of Leviticus, it'll just make so much sense. As we go through Leviticus and we translate it through Christ, by the time we actually get to that conversation, it'll make sense. I found in the past when I try to discuss what the, well, first of all, no one really knows what the purpose of the law is today, hardcore. Most people even argue that Paul probably didn't even understand as he was writing Romans. Romans is complicated, too. But second, it's hard to discuss what the role of the law is in our life today as if, if we don't know the law yet. And that's just not what we do as Christians today. We don't sit around studying the law. And, and nor should we really have to, but at the same time, it's we've kind of missed out on what is the law for us today if we don't spend time studying the law back then and then translate it through Christ. So that's my goal now in the next four or so weeks is to help us get an understand Leviticus, which is the foundation to the entire law. And once we do that, we can dive into what does that look like for us today. So the sacrificial system is the first unit. Um, there are six sacrifices detailed out in the First Testament. And five of them are mentioned in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7. And the sixth one is mentioned in Numbers. And the seventh one, because you always have to have seven, because seven makes things complete. The seventh one is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there's six sacrifices in the First Testament. Six, five of them in the first seven chapters of Leviticus one of them in Numbers, and the Gospels kind of brings a completion to all of them with Jesus' death and resurrection. And so we'll go through the five here. I'll briefly mention the six, but that will be detailed out more in Numbers. 
First thing, remember that the death and the blood of an animal cannot really take away your sins. Remember that the death and the blood of an animal cannot take away your sins. So first of all, let's talk about blood. We talked about it a little bit last week in the introduction um, with what atonement means and that blood and water are the two only things that really cleanse you. Um, but there's this phrase throughout the Bible that says, when we get to Leviticus later, I think it's chapter 16 or 7, it says the life of the animal is in the blood. And, and some of us might have know this subconsciously somewhere in the back of our mind as we've grown up in Christianity. We've probably connected the dots. Um, but I'm going to make it more conscious, or you've maybe never heard of this before. So the question is, why is blood for lack of a better word, and in quotes, so magical when it comes to the atonement of your sins? And the answer is, it's not. Uh, What is the blood, and why is it so important to cleansing? The first thing you must understand, and then you know this, because we've, we've learned this in the church growing up, is that everyone is a sinner. I'm just going to break it down as small as possible so we can baby steps ourselves through this. So I'm not trying to insult your intelligence. I'm just starting at the beginning, and we're just going to, like, build it. The first thing you must understand is the Bible makes it very clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No, there is not one who is righteous. Okay, so that's the whole point of the law. The first point of the law is you're a sinner. How do you know you're a sinner? Actually, that's the second point. The first point is this is what righteousness looks like. The second point is you're a sinner. Why? Because every time I try to do what is right, I fail. Therefore, I realize I'm a sinner. But the law makes it also very clear that the penalty for sin is death. That when you violate God's righteous moral standard that when you're no longer right with God, you're dead. Now, we often think of death as a physical thing, but if you remember back in Genesis, there's death as separation. Death is not physical death. Death is separation. And so death comes in three major ways. First, death is, you can have a physical death, but remember, death is not the end. The Bible makes it very clear that when you die, whether you're a believer or not, you go somewhere else in another dimension. What dimension you go into, I don't know. I don't know what that's like. But you go into another dimension. You're either in hell, Abraham's bosom, Tartarus, heaven, depending on what point in history you lived in and all that kind of stuff. But you're not ending. You're not, and you never will end. There is no such thing as annihilation in the Bible. There are some Christians who disagree with that, but... It's very clear. So death is separation from your physical body. Your soul and your body are ripped apart from each other. The second kind of death is spiritual death, where you're, phys- you're spiritually separated from God, that you're no longer able to walk in the garden with him and, and not have this perverted sin between you and him ruin your relationship. You're separated. And the third death is eternal death, and that's where you're spiritually dead for all eternity. Because if you die physically in a, eternal, in a spiritual death, then you stay spiritually dead for all eternity. And so all death is a separation. So the penalty for sin is that you're separated from God. And I need to make that clear because sometimes some people think, wow, 
You mean sinning against God means that you're going to physically die or eternally die? That's kind of harsh. I don't kill people for sinning against me. But you have to realize that when people sin against you, does that ruin your relationship with them? Does it separate them from you? Sometimes it separates you just to the point where you can't have a good conversation with them. You don't trust them. You can't be emotionally connected or authentic with them. And so you may still be together. You may still be friends. You may still be married. But you're separated in some kind of an emotional um, level. You're not connected. Sometimes if you continue in that state, it'll eventually lead to a total physical separation where I can't trust you so much that I don't want to be friends with you anymore or whatever. But we all know that if somebody continues to sin against you without repentance, it'll eventually lead to a total separation of your friendship, right? And that's the same thing. If that's true for us, then how much more true that will be for righteous, holy God of the universe? And so if you don't think of death as the end of your life, but you think of it as separation being removed from God's presence, then it totally makes sense that the penalty for sin is separation or death. So that's very important for you to understand that. So the most ultimate separation is physical death. And as the um, ultimate um, in this life penalty, which then will lead to eternal death. So that is the penalty. So here's the reality. Therefore, the only way that you can escape the penalty of your sin is if something else dies in your place. And we know that one too. So the third step here is something else has to die in your place. Now, the reality is you should die, and your death then pays for your sin for that moment, but you have no ability to raise yourself from the dead, so you stay dead for all eternity, and that's the curse of sin. The other option is that an animal dies in your place. Now, animals are kind of pathetic compared to humans. And they don't really see, just like a jury needs to be a jury of your peers, an animal is not your peer. They did not cause the fall of humanity. They don't have the same life that a human has. They don't have the same image that a human has. So therefore, a life that is less than the image of God cannot really pay the debt of an image of God. But it is something. It is something. It's better than nothing. And this is why they had to keep sacrificing the animals over and over and over and over again because one animal, thousands of animals, is not enough to pay the debt of an image of God that is sinned against God. So the ultimate reality is something that is innocent, something that is pure, something that is holy, has to physically die in your place. We learn later that an animal is not a good enough representation and therefore the need for Christ, who was a human, but because he was without sin, he was able to die and pay your debt and then come back again, and because he was God. But that's later. Okay? So right now, you need to understand that something has to die in your place. Thus comes the blood. The blood is the most physical, tangible sign of life. Heartbeats. Yeah, you could probably put your head on somebody's chest in the ancient world and look for, hear it, but they didn't have EKGs and all this kind of stuff and all this terminology that I'm probably going to use wrong. Okay, um, They didn't have ways of testing heartbeats, and they couldn't watch brain patterns. Okay, And we all know that your brain can 
and I don't know what the technical term is, but your brain can stop working for lack of a better scientific term, okay? And you can still be alive and come back from that. Okay, brain waves can, we know there's all these different brain wave patterns and waves and all that kind of stuff, and, and brain's functioning doesn't necessarily determine, guarantee that you're actually dead in that moment. We know that hearts can stop, and people can come back and get their hearts um, started again, and they can come back to life for lack of a better phrase. Um, we know that people can stop breathing, and that they are still technically living, and they can come back to life for lack of a better phrase. And so all these things are, one, not very measurable in a pre-scientific world, and they're not guarantees of death, even in a scientific world that we live in today. So the only way that you, and, and the bodies go cold when they die, but we know people can go into hypothermia, and their bodies can be freezing, and they're still alive. So the reality is, is if you cut an animal or a human and bleed them out completely, they're dead. There's no coming back from that. Right? And, so, and especially in the ancient world, maybe there's some new scientific procedure that's happening in some scientific journal where they can transfuse the blood into you again and be okay. But in the ancient world, there is no way that you're coming back from a bleeding out, period. And even today with all of our technology, if somebody comes into the hospital too late after a gunshot wound or whatever, there's very little chance that they're going to survive when all that blood's pouring out of them. And so the reality is the, the blood is the most tangible physical sign of life. And it is by far the most essential thing to keeping you alive. Um, your circulatory system and oxygen flow, everything. And we know that the brain, the heart absolutely need blood. The body needs blood in order to stay alive. So it's not that the blood is what atones for your sins. It's the life of an innocent animal, but the blood is a physical symbol. You cannot see life. You cannot touch life. You cannot hear life. You cannot taste life. It's what we call an abstract concept. Therefore, you need a symbol to tangibly represent life, and that is blood. And that's all really blood is in all of this. It's not magical. It's not the blood that really saves you. It's the fact that when you bleed an animal out completely, to, then there is no blood left. It is so obvious that the animal is dead, and the blood coming out makes it clear that it's not in it anymore. You can see the death, for lack of a better phrase, and now that life has died in your place. And that's important to understand. So why do this? Because we're coming back to that first statement. This really doesn't atone for your sin. This really does not save you. So why do this? If you've ever killed an animal, um, hunting or skinning a deer or gutting it or cleaning it, all those different phrases you want to use. If you ever worked, grew up on a farm, which is becoming less and less so in our cultures today, an animal dying is violent. It is sad. It is graphic. It is depressing. And it is messy. Okay, when people and animals die, there's a lot of blood. And when it goes everywhere, there's no stopping it. It can spray. When it hits the ground, it creates puddles. It just keeps flowing. And I'm being graphic for a purpose because this is the closest we're going to ever get to animal sacrifices, probably. 
And when it gets on you, it is sticky. And we know there's a lot of diseases in blood. It can be, not necessarily guaranteed. It is horrific, it is violent, it is depressing, it is messy. And so is your sin. Because we live in a world where it is so easy to rationalize our sin. We do it all the time. Even as Christians with the Holy Spirit in us, we rationalize our sins. And so basically what the blood becomes is as you lay your hand on the animal and you're saying, this thing's going to die because of me. And you cut that throat out, up, uh, not cut it out. You cut the throat and you bleed the animal out. And you have to watch something die. And it gets everywhere. And then you have to deal with that animal and that blood. This is supposed to be a graphic demonstration of what your sin does. The faith in God is what saves you. The faith is what atones you. The animal sacrifice is just a way of putting your faith into action. Because we all know it's easy to say, I'm sorry. And we really haven't emotionally or mentally processed that. Sometimes we do. Most of the time we don't. But walking through an animal sacrifice forces you to actually think about what you're doing. And it makes your sin more tangible and it makes your faith of repentance more tangible. Could God have come up with many other different ways? Probably. Is this the way he picked? Yes. And how does it fit into the greater Bible? Perfectly. And so the reality is this is the way that you demonstrate your faith, through a physical, tangible action. If there's one thing we should take from this is how should we today find rituals that allow me to put my faith into tangible action so that I can be more conscious and intentional about what I'm doing and not just it be words. And so that's why God laid this out. Now, as you've read through this as we go through tonight, oh my goodness, God, but why so many details? You seem really OCD about this. If the animal sacrifice doesn't really atone for your sins, then why are the details so important? Because love is in the details. If your friend throws a birthday party for you, and they just kind of willy-nilly, haphazardly just throw it together at the last minute, and you get to this birthday party, and there's all these blue balloons, and you're like, I don't even like blue. Blue reminds me of this, like, my grandfather, and that depresses me, and that kind of stuff. And, and I've told them a million times that, and, and they've got all this rice out for you, and it's got cilantro in it, and you're like, I don't even like cilantro. It tastes like soap, and it makes me sick. And, and they give you chocolate cake, and you're like, I don't even like chocolate cake. It's like, I just, I'd rather have vanilla cake or something like that. And they lay all these things out. Do you really feel loved? Some of you might have been at parties or something where they cut everything wrong. And you're like, or their flowers are like, I don't even like these flowers. This smell makes me feel nauseous. And you know you've told them all these things because you've been friends for years. And these things have come up in your conversations and that kind of stuff. Or, on another illustration, your spouse or your friend says, well, I didn't know what to get you for Christmas. And it's like, but you've been mentioning these things. I would really like this and I would really like for the last year. Okay? And they're like, I don't know what to get. That doesn't show love. But if you get to the birthday party and it's your favorite cake 
and your favorite colors and your favorite food. In fact, maybe you only mentioned that you love that food one time ever, and yet they got it exactly the way that you wanted it with the recipe from the rightrecipe.com website, okay? And, and they've got everything laid out and all the things that you say, the, the most perfect day for me would be da-da-da-da-da, and they've got it all laid out for you. And, they've, and they, you get to Christmas and you open up these gifts and it's random things that you just randomly mentioned throughout the year, just one time ever in a conversation about something completely different and they remembered it and they got it for you. You feel loved, right? Because they pay attention to the details. Because love is in the details. And so when I come to God and I follow all the details and I make the details important to me, that shows that I love God. And if you're not a detailed person and you still follow the details, then that really shows that you love God. Does this make sense? And so it's really easy to think, oh my goodness, this is ridiculous, this is way too many details, why is it so important, God? Because really it was just about faith, right? Yes, but we need a way to demonstrate our faith. We need a way to demonstrate our love. You guys know that a lot of people can say, I love you. And you can say a lot of times to God, I have faith. But it's not until you put it into action and it's not until you get the details right that those words actually have meaning. Does that make sense? And we need to think about the animal sacrificial system in the same way. It's not some OCD, anal retentive God who's just put all these difficult hoops for you to jump through so that you can crawl through broken glass and whip your back and say, I'm sorry, just so you can say, okay, now you did all right, I'll forgive you. All God is saying is, do you love me enough to pay attention to the details? Do you love me enough to put your faith and your love into action? And if you expect that from humans in your everyday normal life, then how much will the divine God of the universe expect that? And I think it becomes a lot easier to understand what God is doing when we can just realize that a lot of our relationships here horizontally we expect the same thing it's easy to say but god until somebody helps you realize well wait a minute i do that to my friends all the time and i expect that from my friends all the time and so welcome to the sacrificial system now there are five sacrifices the first three are grouped together because they have a common thing and and that is a pleasing aroma to god they're arranged by the animal that you are sacrificing. Bull, lamb, or goat, and then <laughs> birds. The last two are in a category all by themselves. And they're mostly arranged by who should be doing what. The priests, the people, the leaders. Now the burnt and the grain and the peace offering are the first three offerings. They've been mentioned other times in Exodus and Genesis. But the last two have never been mentioned before um, until this book. And so we're going to deal with the first three, and then we're going to deal with the second two. So, verse 1. Then Yahweh called to Moses and spoke to him from the meeting of the tent of meeting. Speak to the Israelites and tell them, when someone among you presents an offering to Yahweh, 
you must present your offering from the domesticated animals, either from the herd or from the flock. So remember, God spoke to them from the tent because Moses isn't able to go into the tent because Israel is defiled because of their sin with the golden calf. And so that now that they're defiled, they can't go into the tabernacle. So, and God spoke to them from the tent and said, this is how you become purified, so that you can enter the tabernacle. When you present an animal, it must be from your own flock. Now, you have two criteria there. First, it must be your own animal. A sacrifice without a sacrifice is not a sacrifice. You cannot grab somebody else's animal. One, because that's theft, and then you're like, got two sins to pay for now. And that's not, and in, in, in two, it's not your own sacrifice. It's not costing you anything. And we talked about this last week. It must cost you something. Okay, repentance must cost you something. Repentance involves a turning away from what you've done with the intention of stopping because you know it's not loving God and not loving your neighbor. Repentance then also costs you something, and repentance also requires restitution, making things right. And so those three things are essential to repentance. And so the sacrifice must come from your own property, your own finances, so to speak, because it must cost you, because that's the beginning of true turning away. If you know that you're going to lose something big every time you do this, that's going to be very encouraging to turn away. The more and more you get speeding of tickets, the more likely you are to slow down. Okay? And you're actually going to stop doing what is wrong. And then it, be, it becomes the beginning of restitution, making things right. And so it must come from your own herd. That's the first criteria. The second thing is it must be domesticated. It is not allowed to be a wild animal. Wild animals don't cost you anything. Yes, it may have taken you time to go out and hunt that thing, but that didn't really truly cost you anything major. And so wild animals are not allowed. Later, when we get to chapter 11, we'll learn that they all have to be clean, but that's another criteria. So you're not allowed to sacrifice any kind of wild animal, and you're not allowed to find an animal on the side of the road and say, yeah, I can take this in the temple now. It must be a perfect, pure animal of your own financial costs and sacrifices in order for this to truly count because sacrifice without sacrifice is not sacrifice. 